uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Psalm 90 today. Uh, Psalm 90. So uh, this is Lent, the season of Lent. Um, so if you're not familiar with Lent, it, man, it's just a time. If you didn't grow up observing this season, uh, welcome to the club. I did not either. Um, it's a season, just a time to focus um, on a thing that I don't think we would normally just choose to focus on. Mortality, um, sin, uh, I think things that... Um, you're probably not going to find in the self-help section of Barnes and Noble, right? Like, uh, but it just, my argument is that we need it, that, that Lent is super helpful, that it's a, it's a tool, right? Lent's a tool. That's, that's all it is. Um, it's a thing to help us remember. It is not a self-improvement plan. It is uh, not about having it all together. I think that Lent reminds us, I heard someone say this, uh, that uh, oh, you grieve, I grieve too. You hurt, I hurt too. I think that sometimes we uh, think it can be, maybe, maybe it's just in the South, prob- probably, probably, maybe, I don't know. It's what I know the best, uh, the South um, currently, that uh, you feel that when you go to church, you have to have it all together. And Lent says, absolutely not. Like, that's not why we come to church. We don't come to church because we have it all together. We come to church because we're on the verge of falling apart. And even when we feel like we're not on the verge of falling apart, it's a reminder that we always are, if not held together by Christ. So it's a time to collectively come together, someone else said it this way, collectively come together and ask what will become of us. Beautiful. So we're going to be in a psalm today. A psalm is... Psalms are the prayer book of the people of God. Um, They're organized in a very intentional way. Actually, Psalm 90 that we'll be looking at today is the head of the book four. Um, And uh, it's just, it's, it's the, if you want to learn how to pray, you start with the Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught us, his disciples, how to pray, and then you move to the Psalms. Those are your two go to things to have the language and the vocabulary to pray that help you sort through thinking and feeling and what I should say in prayer, or better yet, how to respond to what God has already said, right? That's what prayer is. It's not us just saying, hey, God, if you're listening, it's us answering back to God when he's already spoken. And so uh, that's what prayer is. But also, though, I I like to add to that, that's true, we say that all the time, uh, that there is an element in many of the Psalms uh, of wisdom literature. Uh, it's an ancient thing where people would write uh, things that you were supposed to contemplate and wrestle with and wonder about that taught you about life and living well. And Psalm 90 is that. It's one of those. It's about gaining wisdom. It has all these uh, markings of what we would call a lament, a holy sorrow, a righteous cry out for help. Um, so it has all the marks of a lament, but also it has wisdom literature in here too. It's about how we gain wisdom, knowledge at living well. Uh, it teaches us to, uh, this is how I, heard a, I read a commentator say this way, disburdening our cares to God, being honest about our situation and our feelings. So this is what this is. So this lament is attributed to Moses, uh, or sorry, this, this psalm, it's the only psalm attributed to Moses. It says a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Not everybody believes, it's actually, the, that's the, in the first verse, the title of it is a, is a prayer of Moses. It's the only one here, but uh, some people don't believe that it was attributed to Mo, that wasn't, Moses wasn't really the one that wrote it, that it was written later and just written in his voice. Uh, I think it's, I think Moses wrote it uh, uh, for two main reasons. One, it says so right there. 
I don't really need another, like all the other arguments, I'm like, well, those all make sense, but not enough sense to overcome what it says right there. Uh, so, two, the other reason I believe this is, man, it makes so much sense that Moses would have written this. <laughs> like, it makes so much sense that Moses would have written this psalm. You'll see what I mean as we, as we go through it. So, here's the situation. Uh, Moses was this man, we've been going through Exodus. God used him to lead his people, uh, uh, um, God's people, the Israelites, out from slavery in Egypt. Uh, but they had to go through a time of testing first, right? And so he leads them out, and, but there's this time of testing. And God wants them to not only give them the good things that he's promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, all these promises he's made to his people to give them this good land. He not only wants to give them the good land, but to make them the type of people that will live in it well, right? To change them so they don't become like the people that were in the land before them. So he takes them and he's, they go through this time of testing uh, and he wants to make them a light to the rest of the world. They're going to live in this land with God and God is going to protect them and provide for them. And by the way that they live and the way that God loves them, the rest of the nations are going to be drawn to them. That is the idea. That is what God is going to do. But it turns out they get there and... Um, after many years, and they are incapable of conforming their lives to the reality that God can satisfy them, right? Instead, they're looking around at all of the people that were already in the land, and they're looking around at all of the other options that they have, and they start taking shortcuts to relieve suffering, shortcuts that they think will lead them to happiness that are in the direct violation of what God has told them to do. And when things are going well, they believe that they don't need God, right? And then when things are going badly, they cry out to God. The entire book of Judges, by the way, if you ever read Judges, there's this repeated refrain. It's just, it's like, it just, it's over, it's clearly obvious. It says, uh, and then uh, the uh, leader died, and uh, the people did whatever they wanted to do. Uh, and so God, in an attempt to protect them and preserve life, he sends in a foreign nation to control them. And then, once they're under, God's control, under control of this foreign nation, they cry out to God, their hearts return to God, and God comes and sends someone to rescue them. And then, when things are good again, they do whatever they want. They go back to doing whatever they want. It's this cycle that I wish didn't feel real to me. And so that's what happens when they get into the land. Uh, This happens. And this psalm is for times like that, when the nation finds themselves away from God, crying out, asking for full repentance, uh, uh, for living the wrong lives. Because what happens when they get to the land is, uh, and what happens to me and you is, Siri wants to have a word about it. and what happens to me and you and what happened to them when they get into the land is that they forget. And I think this is our problem. We forget the reality of who we are and who God is. And we get confused. And when we, that reality is not connected between who we are and who God is, um, short answer is we just don't act right. <laughs> because we're not living in accordance with reality. So let's start this psalm. It is amazing. Psalm uh, 90, I'm going to start in verse 1. Um, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. So it starts off with this short hymn, this short address to God uh, about his protection and his provision. And it says that, you know, to, the, to a nation that was traveling through the wilderness for 40, 40 years, 
to say God is my refuge. God is our hiding place. He has been the place of our protection all of this time. We didn't have walls. We didn't have fortresses. We were wandering in the desert. It was God that it was our safe place, the place that we ran to for protection, the place that we ran to knowing that we would be safe. God, you have been that for us. When they left Egypt, they had nothing, and God protected them along the way, and he proved himself faithful generation after generation. And Moses says this, God, you, you are eternal. You are the eternal creator. I love the language. It's so beautiful. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed or conceived the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He is the eternal creator without beginning, without end. And this is what he is like. You protect and love your people. He is their hiding place. Then it goes like this. Lord, you've been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or ever you have formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight or but as yesterday when it's past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood They're like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning, it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening, fades and withers. For we're brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You've set our iniquities before you. Our secret sins in the light of your presence. All of our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end, you, like a sigh. The years of life, 70, even by reason of strength, 80. But their span is but toil and trouble. They're soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. It's not the end of the psalm, but I want to stop there. Uh, So here, don't push this uncomfortable truth away. I think we have a tendency to do that, right? We want to push uncomfortable things far from us. Uh, I'm not the first person to say this. Uh, Secular people have written about this, how we as a society push the frailty of life and death far from us. Right? We, we keep that isolated over there. Uh, reality far. We don't want to think about it, so we just push it way, way away from us. Uh, uh, and we have a tendency, I think, not just in that, I, I think humans have a tendency to do this. We do this. We, uh, have you ever heard a funny sound in your car and thought, that'll probably go away? We just want to push the reality that cars don't heal themselves out of our mind, right? Like, we just want to push these things far from us that are uncomfortable. Uh, or as the great theologian Mike Tyson once said, Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And, you know, life does that, right? Life has a, has a tendency to punch us in the mouth. And so what he says here is, may seem like an uncomfortable truth, but it's just so helpful. Here he goes. He says this. He says that man returns to dust. We were made from dust. And this, this is probably an old man's psalm, right? Like, it's hard to imagine him, write, Moses, writing this when he was 21, you know? 
right? He's, you know, this is, this is, this is somebody my age or older, right? Writing this, you know, looking, looking back and going like, whew, this has been rough, you know? So he, he's looked back at his life. He's looked at all of what they've gone through, how he led people out of this land like God told him to. They sinned and rebelled. God killed a bunch of them uh, in the desert. As a matter of fact, all of the ones that were adults that left the desert were killed. And he looks at the span of life, and this is what he writes. He says, we were made from dust. And it says that we're going to return to dust. That is the reality of our lives. In Genesis uh, 3.19, uh, it says right after what we finished reading, uh, God is telling them what's going to happen because they've rebelled. And it says, by the sweat of your face, you'll eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We were created out of dust, and creation out of dust was reversed because of the fall, and you will return to dust. This is the reality of our lives, that we exist between being dust piles. And so uh, it happens, he goes on in this and he says, it's, it happens because of sin. That, like, that during the, our days that we exist, that you know our secret sins, that, that, uh, that you are aware of all that we've done and our days pass forth under your wrath because of sin. He's thinking about Israel and saying, we couldn't keep your laws. We fell in love with what was in the land already. We fell in love with other gods and your wrath was rightly and justly on us. And we, we recognize that we have a lot of problems with this psalm. It just reminds us that the biggest and deepest underlying problem we have is sin. And so he, he knows this. God knows our sin. He knows and hates our sin. So our days are short. So if the question is then, how do you live? Right? If this is the reality, if this is the reality, how then do you live? Uh, or I heard one guy say this way, when you come face to face with how fragile this world is, how fragile your life is, how disappointing life can be, how do you keep going? And so he gives us wisdom here. He, he says this, he says, here's what we do. Because this is the reality of my life, Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Have a plan, carry it out, evaluate what our lives look like so that we can gain wisdom. Based on this reality that this is, who our li- that this is what life is, and this is not, by the way, a Jewish or Christian idea. This is human, right? Like everybody knows that we come into this world and we leave it. And so in light of that, how do you live? And Moses says, let us understand that our days are short so we'll learn how to live wisely, right? So it's, we want to push this uncomfortable truth away, but the, the reality is that this is, since this is the reality, since this is true, it would be stupid for us to live like there weren't limited number of days for us to do things. And like I said, this is an older man's psalm, right? But that doesn't mean you can't begin to live this way younger. But, but a realization of someone in his life who gets to a certain place in life and is like, you know what? Things haven't gone the way I thought they would. So they begin to buy ridiculous shoes that their parents wisely wouldn't buy them when they were children. You make decisions going like, you look around and like, let me evaluate what's happening. I only have a certain number of days left. And you begin to panic. And so, so this is the reality. We must then live wisely and ask God how to live. This is 
it. This is the reality for everybody. And so there's some common secular ways of dealing with this, right? And there's, these fall under certain philosophies. We could categorize these, but let's talk in common, kind of like just common language, like just the things that we will recognize, that I'll recognize at least. Um, one of the ways that we deal with the fact that our days are short is that we try to make them mean something, right? We try to come up with something and go like, if I give myself to this, then the time that I spend as animated dust will, will be valuable. Uh, we, uh, so I talked to several uh, young people uh, over the years, and I'm, I'm getting worse at it. It's not good at it at all. Uh, and they say things, so there's this young woman, uh, she was, works for the restaurant, at a restaurant that we, we eat at and, and we became friendly. She's just, you know, a child though, right? And uh, a young one. And uh, she's going to go off to college. I asked, you know, talk, just making chit chat. What are you, you going to do? And she's like, I'm going to go into something, something, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to work for a nonprofit, blah, blah, blah. And I, just, I need my job like to mean something. And me, because I was, you know, not here. I wasn't at church. I, I forgot that I'm a pastor and that people listen to my things that I say sometimes with a different weight than I intend them. I said, well, that's stupid. And she goes, what are you talking about? And I go, hey, you go to work for non I was like, aren't your, are your parents going to pay for school? Yeah, you can go do whatever you want. Well, well yeah, I go, you go work that nonprofit for your whole life making $30,000 a year, and you're going to die underneath a plaque of a rich man. Go, make a, go take the job, make $100,000 that means that much to you. Give $70,000 to the nonprofit. They would rather you do that than come work for them. Your job shouldn't, tell you, should, shouldn't give you meaning. As you can imagine, I found out years later, that did not sit well with her. But I was right. No, no, no. But uh, it didn't say well. But you, we, we want to go, and people say this now. Like I just, I want to do something that means something, right? So, so we give our lives to something that we believe has value, as if us, us ash heaps know what will stand the test of time, what will matter. The other thing that people will do is. Um, <laughs> Just seek comfort and pleasure. Eat, drink, and be merry. Right? I got a short time on this. You know, Paul said that. Paul said, if there's no resurrection from the dead, that's what I'm doing. Paul said, if there's no resurrection from the dead, I'm going to throw a party. Eat, drink, and be merry. And so some of us live as a way to deal with the fact that this reality is that we come into this world and leave. One of the ways that we deal with it is just, well, let's make the most of it while we can. It's a hard way to live. There's diminishing returns on that. I tried it. It's not great. It doesn't turn out beautiful for everybody. I mean, there's Keith Richards, but other than him. There's just diminishing returns on trying to pursue pleasure and comfort. And by the way, the weirdest thing happened to me. I gave myself every day to making myself as happy as I could be, and it took less than six months to be the most miserable I've ever been. I don't know why. Maybe that wouldn't be your experience, but I predict that it probably would be. So we could give ourselves to finding purpose and meaning and a thing that we think has value. We can give ourselves to uh, comfort and pleasure or we can give ourselves to just, you know, distraction. 
That's maybe the saddest one to me, right? Just gonna just, you know, go to my job, go home, watch Netflix till I die. Like, you know, just makes me sad to think about. But I, I do think there's a bunch of people we're just distracting ourselves with entertainment. We're just entertaining ourselves to death. And, and, and so I think that's another way to, to deal with it is just to push off the thought of the fact that we are ashes to ashes. So this gives a very different way of dealing with it. Uh, Moses gives us two different things that I think are just absolutely critical, much better ways of dealing with the reality, not pushing it off, not just enjoying the ride while you can, but a much, much more valuable way of understanding and dealing with reality. So first he says this, uh, so we're going to wisely number our days in the face of our feeding frailty, right? Don't push that reality away. When it happens, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom, When we push out that reality, we begin to not value the time that we have. I think it's stunning that what we do matters. But it does. We do with our time matters. So we we plan and we carry out. So Moses says that, and then he says this. Not only does he give us the advice to number our days, he also believes that something is going to happen in the future. He asks God for something. This is how he, what he says after this. Teach us the number of our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Verse 13, return, O Lord. He's praying now, right? How long have pity on your servants? So he's asking God for something. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. <laughs> Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you, as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we've seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. He says this, God, satisfy us with your pursuing love. The thing that we're seeking for most in this world, satisfy us with your love so that we stop seeking it in other places. He also prays, make us rejoice for longer than we've suffered. The sufferings lasted a long time. We have joy far beyond that. And he says, do a mighty work so that we can see it and that our children can see it. Make it happen. And then he says this last thing he asks for is, and establish the work of our hands. Make what we do matter. You establish it. We can't establish it on our own. You establish what we do here. Moses had no idea how this is going to play out, right? When he prayed this, he didn't know how God would answer these prayers. I think that maybe Moses gets to heaven, like God buries himself on this mountain, and Moses' soul is taken to heaven, whatever that's like, but somewhere where you're, you're with God outside of time and space. And I think Moses gets there, and he's prayed this prayer, and his life has been rough, and he's like, whatever became of that psalm I wrote? And like, you're never going to believe it. You're never going to believe. He's going to satisfy you with pursuing love by coming to earth himself and chasing down people. What? That's exactly right. And you know how long you're going to suffer? You know how long you've suffered? Your eternity cannot compare to the length of time that you've spent on this earth. He will save you into eternity. What? He's going to do a mighty work that the generations remember coming to earth himself, dying on a cross, God himself becoming killable? What? 
establish the work of our hands. I'm going to live among them and I'm going to establish what they do into eternity when they do it in my name. And Moses' mind was blown. And he did a dance. They call it the Moses dance in heaven. I don't know what it looks like because I've never been there, but I'm certain it happened. Because his mind was blown, right? Like, like how, like he, you're going you're gonna to do all of the things that I asked in ways that I couldn't even conceive of. You're going to give us a new eternal horizon? I wonder if Moses thought when he died that his life was a failure, right? I mean, because the people that he led out of Israel, not such a good report card. Like, they didn't do great. Um, uh, they just fail. Like, the story of Exodus is just the story, and, and, and just the story of the Old Testament uh, is just the story of just this constant failure and rejection of God's reality. So the people he led didn't do great. A bunch of them died in the desert because of their sins. Moses wanted to see the promised land, right? And because of his sin, he was kept out of the promised land. God let him look over and see into the land that he promised. But because he had sinned, God said, you're not going to go in. And he dies on a mountaintop. Never gets to look in. Then this crazy thing happens. God comes to earth as a man, and then one day, he takes a couple of his disciples, and they go up on a mountaintop, and Jesus is, they, they, it's called the transfiguration. Jesus is transformed. He's like glowing, and the veil is pulled back. I, I, it's what I, would, it's what I call, have taken to calling these an Eden moment, where heaven and earth are overlapping for a second, and, and, God, and, and Jesus is there, and he looks up, and like, it's like Moses is there too. And the disciples are like, what is happening? And they're freaking out. Like, should we build temples to these people? Like, what should we do? And, and they're just having this conversation. And Moses, who may have died thinking his life is failure, gets the thing he gets to see. He gets to see the way of the promised land, and he gets to see the very face of God. It's amazing, right, that we get this peek into the future, and what we find out through the scriptures and through this testimony of others that have gone before us is that there's this new reality of heaven invading earth. That's what Jesus' gospel is, the kingdom coming. There's a new reality and that we inhabit two worlds. The, the eternal life of God in the first two verses flows into the life of the dust and ashes of the next verses. John 15, Jesus is teaching and he says this. He says, I'm the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because you have the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. My life in you and your life in me as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch, withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. For by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. The life of the eternal God flowing into the dust and ashes. 
so that through Jesus Christ, his life flowing into us, that we produce fruit, that the death that was assigned to us in Genesis because of our sin has been now life allowed to flow into us because of who Christ is and what he's accomplished and that we can now bear fruit and be spiritually alive. That is the beauty of what has been promised. Moses is praying that God will fulfill these things and somehow make this happen, not seeing that one day God's quality of life would invade us and that we would inhabit the eternity of heaven and time and space at the same time. Uh, Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians. He says, so that we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. The physical body will break down. It will return to ash. But the one who took the dust and made it into life in the first place is gonna one day take the dust that we become and make it into new life, Paul says. It's gonna be even better than the one that we have now. So not only will heaven invade and we have access to that life now, but he's gonna make all things new one day. So then how do we live? As inhabitants of both of these worlds, uh, as aliens and strangers in this world primarily, but as, a, as kingdom, uh, kingdom residents, uh, so that what can be said of Jesus can be said of us because his life is in us, right? So, so children of the king, how do we then live? What are we asking him in our lives to establish? What are we doing that we're asking God to establish? What does success in your labors look like? the things that you work at every day. Is that what we want established? So in philosophical terms, what we're talking about is what is the good life and what is the good person? I think sometimes we we disconnect these two things, right? Um, What is the good life? This is the thing that advertising focuses on, right? Uh, I read this recently. A guy said this. He said, advertisers focus on what is the good life? Full hair, white teeth, big house, nice car good life what is the good person and he said this obituaries focus on that it would be weird to read an obituary that said he had a full head of hair white teeth big house and drove a nice car disconnect between the good person and the good life so what is, what do we do about that? Which one do you think has more lasting effects on the world? Are my labors every day aiming at one and not the other? Is there that disconnect in reality? So the question then is, who are we listening to, right? About what the good life is. Like, what are our sources of information? What are, what are the voices that we hear? What is the information that we have that tells us what the good life is and what the good person is? Psalm 1 says this, blessed is the man, so good life, right? Who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. It's like a tree planted by streams of water, yields its fruit in its season. Leaf does not wither. All that he does, he prospers. Wicked, not so. Chaff, the wind drives away. 
Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The same guy that I was reading said this. He said, the counsel of the ungodly. Because, right, like, no, like nobody's, like, anybody here sitting in the counsel of the ungodly? Like, I don't, nobody's going to be like, yeah, like, I do that. Like, I just, you know, Satanist is just like, who am I hanging out with, right? Nobody's like, just like, yeah, I, I sit in the counsel of the ungodly. We don't think that we're doing. This is what this, this, is what this guy said. It messed me up. I've been thinking about it a lot. That's why I'm telling you. The counsel of the ungodly is just the way most people talk. It's the counsel to live as though it were not true that you were an unceasing spiritual being with an eternal destiny in God's glorious universe. It is to live as though it matters what other people think of me. That is the counsel of the ungodly. It is the counsel of the ungodly to live as though the outcome of my life is dependent upon me and in my control. That is the counsel of the ungodly. The counsel of the ungodly is to live as if satisfying my desires and appetites is central to my well-being and a wise strategy for living in the first place. Sitting in the seat. And when he says is this, he says, you know, it's, what happens is you just walk by and then when you stop and the next thing you know, you're sitting in the counsel of the ungodly. And it's just the voices that you hear that tell you what is the good life and what it means to live well. And it just fails to acknowledge the reality that God has offered us eternal life now through Christ and faith in him. So who do we listen to? And this is what the guy said that blew my mind, messed me up. Jesus has the best knowledge about these things. Jesus has the best knowledge about these things. He's connected these things, what it means to live a good life and what it means to be a good person. It has to do with where we store up treasures. So what do we do then, right? Because life just, you know, it feels so much sometimes, right? You know? You guys know who Marie Kondo is? Did you hear about what she said? So she was just like a uh, like help you clean up your house kind of person, right? Like she had like a Netflix thing and all this stuff, and she would say stuff like go around your house and like throw away everything that clutters your house or whatever. Uh, so a couple weeks ago, uh, I saw the headline and uh, just moved on with my life, uh, but chuckled first uh, at this, uh, that she has admitted that uh, she no longer uh, picks up her house every day. You know why? Third kid. Yeah, that's right. Because uh, it makes good sense to walk around your house and hold things and only keep the things that make you joy, to give you joy till you realize you can't put a toddler on the street corner. Right? Because there's going to be days you love the toddler, you do anything for him, but not bringing joy. And so everybody's like, ah, ha, ha, like, kind of, ha, ha, ha. And I'm like, I'm like, calm down, you can still put on pants today. Like, you know, we can still elevate our game a little bit, some of us. But she just like finally admitted that. I had a great plan till life punched me in the face. So how are we supposed to live then when it feels like we're constantly being kicked, when reality is punching, punching us in the face? And it's to align our reality with the reality of what Jesus said. And so when our voices come against us and say, you don't deserve God's love, look at all that you've done, we sit and we wrestle with the reality that Jesus says, I love you and you are mine. And we fight those voices that say you don't deserve, there's no way he loves you. And you fight with the reality of the truth because Jesus had something to say about that. And so when we say that we're disciples of Jesus, that we're followers of Jesus, that's not just some minimum entrance requirement to get into heaven, checking a box. It's saying that he is the one that teaches us about what is real. That's what discipleship is. 
Him drawing us into this truth, him drawing us into this reality that you are what the cross says about you, that deeply sinful and that deeply loved. You're an eternal being and you fight that. What Jesus has to say, when I come to him and I'm struggling with anxiety, I go to God and say, what do I do with this? And we sit still and we know that he is God and that he is good. When we struggle with unworthiness, we go to him. When we have great success, we go to him. And what he says, this is a great gift from me to you. I bless, the, I bless people. I just do this. You haven't deserved it. You haven't earned it. So go and be wise with what I've given you, with your time and your resources. He says all of these things that are true. Yes, you are from dust. Yes, you will return to dust. But I have conquered death and the grave. So you know that not only do you have a place, but God is going to make everything new. And the one who took dust out of the ground to make man the first time will remake us. So when they call me child of God, they can call you child of God because you were found in me and you are my disciple. Our hearts beating like his heart beats, loving what he loves and hating what he hates. So when we have an emotion that wells up in us and we don't know what to do with it, we go to God with it and we listen to what Jesus had to say. We let him speak wisdom into our lives about what is true and what is real. You were a child of the king and you were deeply loved. Yeah, you're a sinner too. Lent helps me this tool that helps me go, yes, 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 I must be rescued, and I have been. It reminds me that my days are limited, and that is not a thing to lament, that I have an eternity, that all of the days that I'm living out now, or God is just preparing me for this weight of eternal glory that we will have in Christ. He's given us a new horizon, these, these ash heaps, new futures, all through being united to him by faith. I believe who he says he is. I believe he did what he said he did. He did what he said he would did. And that he has, he has the wisdom and the knowledge to tell me about this new reality where I have eternal life drawing on the power of God itself, himself. What a gift. Let's pray. Father, whoa, whoa, what an amazing world uh, th- that you care about us. What an amazing thing that you have not only spoken truth, but pursued us. That you've pursued us with your loyal love, that you satisfy us in the mornings, that you are renewing our spirit while our body is wasting away. that there is an eternity, that there is a place where God is and that eternity will one day fully invade and remake everything. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And while we wait, give us wisdom to count our days, the number of days that we have to be obedient, to love you in folding laundry and sitting in carpool, in, in all of the things that you place in front of them, us, doing them as if We are eternal beings that you have saved. Investing in people as if they are eternal beings that you died for. Being obedient in our thinking and our feeling. Resisting the inner gestures away from you and pursuing instead holiness. A richness and depth of life. And their reality is what is a good life? 
and what a good person is. May they align. May we pursue not advertising things, but obituary things. For your glory. Christ's name we pray. Amen.